yeah. the cups of the Lord's wrath. Awake, awake, raise up Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to his dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Among all the children she bore, there was none to guide her. Among all the children she reared, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword? Who can console you? Your children have fainted. They lie at every street corner like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord, with the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors, who said to you, Fall prostrate, that we may walk on you. And you made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked on. We will next uh, turn to page 1503 uh, for Luke chapter 2, verse 39 to 46. Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray, so that you will not fall into temptation. Thanks, Eric. Good morning, everyone. My name is Bernie. Let me just add my welcome to that of uh, Michael's. Great to have you here. Uh, isn't it wonderful to be able to have our Bibles uh, back in the pews? Isn't that great? So I get to say to you, please keep your Bibles open to, uh, to Luke chapter 22. Uh, it's going to be really important to have that uh, in place so we can follow it closely. I should also let you know that uh, we've been uh, making a little bit of progress when it comes to, uh, to getting growth groups started up. We have a new growth group that's actually going to be starting up soon. Uh, it happens on the Sunday afternoons. Uh, we're really trying, so if you are looking for, uh, for a growth group to join, let us know. Well, we really want to make sure that people get to not only hear the word on Sundays, but also gather together in smaller groups uh, to be able to do that and pray together. Let me pray for us right now uh, as we get our hearts all ready to be able to hear God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we give you praise that uh, you speak to us today. And Father, you are clear and you are wonderfully uh, loving and gracious to us as you speak to us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would work in us as we hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, there's something very Australian when someone with uh, enormous authority and renown uh, plays down their status, rolls up their sleeves, and picks up a shovel and starts helping out. And you can almost hear them say, mate, you tell me what to do. I'm here to serve you. Well, it wasn't an Aussie, but a very famous Spaniard uh, who decided to chip in when his hometown in Mallorca, in Spain, was hit with uh, devastating flash floods in 2018. That was, for all of you uh, tennis fans out there, uh, Rafael Nadal. He was a person who was then the 17-time Grand Slam champion. And there he was, in the midst of a flood, uh, there he was, knee-deep in the stuff, uh, with a shovel. Uh, he knew that all his physical conditioning really helped uh, with shoveling mud. Uh, he even opened up his, uh, his tennis academy to those people who really kind of was without home uh, due to those floods. An unlikely person rolling up his sleeves to serve. Well, last week we heard Jesus say, chapter 22, verse 27, I am among you as one who serves. He should have been at the place of honor, reclining at the table and being served. Instead, what he does is he repurposes the bread and the cup of the Passover to point to how he would give himself, how he would sacrifice himself so he and his followers can be together in his kingdom. We're left with mixed feelings and expectation when it comes to the disciples on the one hand, Jesus says, they are those who have stood by me in my trials. But on the other hand, amongst them is a betrayer, a deserter, and all of them were hung up on greatness. Not a very impressive bunch at all. And to add to that, there is Satan that is just banging on each and every one of their doors. Now we reach a section of the gospel where we are privy to the mind and deep desires of Jesus in the face of immense suffering. Will he continue to say to his father, you tell me what you need me to do. I'm here to serve. Well, it's been a big day, and Jesus heads off to his usual spot. Verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. Uh, back in chapter 21, verse 37, it said that each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to, the, to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. I assume it's been a place of rest for Jesus, a place where he could tell God of his joys, of his sorrows, of his requests for the day. But I did start to wonder if the Mount of Olives had any significance in Israel's history. So I had a look, and I found a really striking passage in Zechariah, where the Mount of Olives was a place of note. And Zechariah starts with God's call for his people to forsake their evil ways and practices. And by the end of Zechariah, God will gather the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it presumably to stop all that evil that is going on within his very own people and to refine them. It was a prophecy for the future. Now take a look at what happens next in Zechariah chapter 14, and it's your outline. It says, Then the Lord will go out 
and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azul. There is going to be a spectacular rescue of his people right here at the Mount of Olives. Can you see it? God will fight against the enemies of Israel and there have never been a horde of people, no matter how great, who could stand up against God Almighty when he's got his gloves on. There is God fighting off his enemies and he's standing on this Mount of Olives. And under him, the mountain splits in two as if he pushes them apart with his feet. He's fighting against the nations and he enables his people to escape through a valley under him. Can you imagine the mighty Mount Lofty? Can you imagine it being split in two as it cracks and as it thunders and quakes as two parts just move apart? God is engaged in an almighty battle as he shatters the enemy's weapons and sends them plague after plague. And you get to just see the crowd of people snaking their way, making their escape through the valley that he has made. They've got their children. They've got their livestock and any belonging they could carry. Does that remind you of anything? Perhaps a splitting of a sea in two? forming a valley of dry ground through which God's people escaped the conflict that was Egypt. Zechariah spoke of another escape via an earthquake. God seems to be always rescuing his people in spectacular ways like this. Well, just like Egypt and just like the earthquake, God foretells of a great escape, a great exodus of his people through the Mount of Olives. And not only that, the nations in the end would join the Israelites in worshipping the King, the Lord Almighty. And Jesus has been visiting this mountain regularly. And we find him there again. His disciples have followed him there. And it leaves us asking if it would be now that God will fulfill that promise to rescue his people in Zechariah for the feet of God the Son is now planted on that mountain. There are certainly enemies, surprisingly, from within Israel, who's facing off against him. Is God the Son about to open the way for the escape? This time, however, God the Son is facing battle wounds. Now, even before attending to his own concerns, Jesus seeks to serve his disciples in verse 40. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. There is much temptation that is already facing the disciples. We've heard about the dealings uh, with Satan and Judas and his desire to sift all the disciples as wheat in verse 31. The temptation to seek after greatness and authority. Well, that's been kicking around as well. Simon Peter faces the temptation to desert Jesus. They need to pray to God Almighty the same way Jesus has prayed for Simon 
that God would preserve them from falling. They already look like they're losing their foothold and they're already slipping. They need to persevere. Back in Luke chapter 8, the disciples heard Jesus tell them the parable of the soils. I wonder whether you remember. And he explained what each type of soil meant. The sower had given each type of soil the seed, which represents the word of God. There were some that fell on the path. You remember what the path represented? It rep represented people who hear God's word and the devil takes it away immediately. That sounds very much like, well, Judas. Simon and the others are also facing the tug from Satan. There was the seed that fell among thorns. They hear the word, but they don't mature because of the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life. Well, the disciples, what have they been disputing about? They've been disputing about who's going to be the greatest. Very much a very worldly matter. There was the rocky ground, representing those who received the word with joy at first, but in the time of temptation, they will fall away. Jesus has just warned them to pray so that they don't give in to temptation. Lastly, thankfully, there was a the good soil. They are the ones who hear the word, who retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Jesus has just given his word. And we're waiting to see if the disciples retain it and persevere and produce a rich crop. It has been a word about Jesus himself giving up his body and his blood for the world. Now, some of you might know me quite well and <clears throat> know that I'm a fairly hopeless gardener. But one day, I looked at my grass and I thought I had a lawn problem. You know the lawn problem where everything that's green on your lawn is actually weeds and not grass at all? It makes you kind of a little bit worried when you're, uh, and you're in a deep of winter. Well, I said, that's it. Something, I'm going to do something about it. I know what I'll do. I'll go to Bunnings and I'll go and buy a box of grass seeds. That's what we need. We need more grass. Grass seeds. That's what you need, right? So I got it. I was very, very proud of myself. And so what do I do? Well, the first things that you've got to do is you kill off the weeds first, right? right? You thought I forgot about that, didn't you? No, no, no. I, I remember that. Kill weeds. Tick. Water the lawn. Tick. Fertilizer. Tick. That was going pretty good. Spread seed. Tick. Watch the birds eat the seed. Tick. Oh. Can you imagine? We actually have a dog. The dog just looked and just watched on as the birds ate the seed. I, I, isn't that what you're there for? You're supposed to show away the birds. But no. They, go, they went the seed. I just thought, maybe God just makes me do this so that I have an illustration to give on, our, on sermons. But there we are. God has just planted his seeds. Jesus has given us his word to people, to his disciples, and they are just waiting to see what his disciples are going to do with that word. What he wants is for them to retain that word and to produce fruit and not let anything get it in the way. The disciples have already been taught by Jesus how to pray. Do you remember that? Chapter 11. We do this a lot, right? Chapter 11, it says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And... 
lead us not into temptation. They know what to pray. They've heard it before. The types of challenges that the disciples faced, they haven't disappeared today, have they? Yes, they were in a unique time with unique circumstances, but the types of challenges are the same today. Today, Jesus still says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. When you hear the word of God, pray that you won't be tempted to simply dismiss it. When temptation to follow the world or our own sinful desires come along, pray that God would help you resist. Pray, because temptation is at your door. Well, Jesus has tended to his disciples, and now comes a moment just between him and his heavenly Father. What a privilege it is to be able to listen in on this. I hope you feel this. Verse 41, it says, Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus directed the disciples to pray, it came from a desire for them to share in what he enjoys with his Father all the time, an audience for his deepest joys and concerns, a listening ear for one God loves. We see him kneeling down this time when the norm would be to stand up with our heads lifted up to the heavens. It's an occasion of great distress. For there is a cup which Jesus wishes to be taken from him. Our Old Testament Bible reading in Isaiah 51 tells us what this cup represents. It is the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's anger. In that occasion, God served this cup of anger to the people of Jerusalem because they had forsaken him and had turned to idols instead. He gives it to them ultimately to rebuke them so that they might turn back to him. He had already warned them multiple times, but they persisted to turn their backs on the God who created them and saved them. By the end of the passage in Isaiah, God takes the cup away from their hands, and he gives it instead to their enemies. Because of his love for his people and his covenantal promises to them, he spares them the full extent of his anger. For ultimately, he wants them to turn back to him such that he would be their God and that they would be his people. Zechariah's prophecy certainly does resemble this one in Isaiah. And with all this in background, we're left asking ourselves, what does this have to do with Jesus? Jesus has always been faithful to his father. Where Israel ran headfirst into temptation and idolatry, Jesus resisted. Before Satan's temptation in Luke 4, it was Jesus who said what? He was the one who said, Man shall not live on bread alone, and worship the Lord your God and serve him only, and do not put the Lord your God to the test. That is what Jesus said. Jesus is not swayed by what Satan has to offer, He is not swayed by what the world has to offer. He has no sinful nature to struggle against, for his nature is always to trust in his Father. He 
and his Father, along with the Spirit, are one. I was trying to imagine the household of God. I know, it's a bit hard. I'm trying to catch it in my head. But can you imagine, right, there would be no, no such thing as discipline or punishment in that household. There's no correction, no anger he had to face, Jesus had to face from his father. There was no naughty corner. There was no timeout room. There was no, no whiteboard with Jesus' name on it, with marks against it. The father never had to confiscate Jesus' belongings. Never had to do it. There's never been a misunderstanding or hissy fits. There was just unity and harmony and love. There has never been a time when Jesus faced an ounce of anger or disappointment or displeasure from his father. All he has ever heard from his father Remember at his baptism? All he has ever heard from his father is, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So why would Jesus even have to ask his father to remove this cup of anger from him? He doesn't deserve it. He has never deserved it. And he will never deserve it. We are the ones who deserve it. We are the ones who, like the disciples, we are the ones that, are, that should be found on our knees, pleading the Father to take this cup away from me. We, not Jesus. Jesus has the cup of God's anger in his hands for us. In the language of Isaiah, he would drain to its dregs for us. He takes it out of our hands, the cup that would make us stagger, such that we would never have to drink it, and he takes it upon himself. The wrath that he does not deserve, so that we who deserve it may escape through the valley he would create. You see, it turns out that the very people who needed an escape route were the very ones who deserved God's wrath. Sadly, there are Bible teachers out there who deny that Jesus ever took on God's punishment in our place. I met such a person a, a, a few years ago here in, in Adelaide, and I just plainly said, I, uh, he just plainly said, I don't believe that Jesus faced God's anger. In fact, I don't think God gets angry at all, and he doesn't punish people. I mean, as you can imagine, I was quite taken aback and confused and so I asked, well, why do you think Jesus needed to die at all? To which he said, I don't know. I was shocked. And I wondered what he would preach at Easter. Because I'm not telling you this to raise my ego as if I have all the right answers. I was just shocked that we read the same Bible. And he could not see that Jesus would took on God's punishment for us. 1 Peter chapter 3.18 says, Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, us, to bring us to God. Jesus took on the cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. It's one thing that Jesus was given the cup of anger to contend with. 
But just listen, let's listen to how he prays to his father. Verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. There is certainly nothing untoward about asking that he be spared the cup of anger. Yet that wasn't his ultimate request. Otherwise, he would have just said, Father, take this cup from me. But he doesn't. You've got to make sure that we don't miss this. Because his ultimate request was for his Father's will to be done. When we see that what transpires in the events that follow, we might think that the Father's answer to his son's request is no. When actually his answer was yes. Yes, that the Father's will be done. For that was Jesus' greatest desire beyond what he wished for himself. In the face of unimaginable pain, the pain of facing his father's anger, he says, your will, not mine. When we consider the father's will for his son in the pages of Luke, there is a mixture of expectations, isn't there? Chapter 1, verse 68 says, God's will is that Jesus is to be the horn of salvation. God's way of redeeming his people. Chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus identifies himself as God's herald of good news to the poor and freedom for prisoners and the Lord's favor. Yet from chapter 9, verse 21, God's will is for Jesus to be killed and to be raised to life. Chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus follows his Father's will in coming to seek and to save the lost. Friends, have we considered what would have happened if the Father did take away the cup, as Jesus requested, what would have happened is that the cup would still be in our hands. We would not have been saved. We would not have been redeemed. We would not receive God's favor. We would still be lost in God's eyes. There was no other way to save the lost except for Jesus taking the cup that we deserve. One of the ways these verses applies to us today is teaching us how to pray. Much like Jesus teaching us to pray the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us here to pray for God's will to be done. He teaches us not to assume too quickly that we have all the information or that we know best ourselves or we know better than God. We are too, in all things, by prayer and petition, to present our requests to God. And as we do so, our greatest prayer is for God's will to be done. For God to do what he thinks is best. For he knows what is best and what is good. And what is right? We need to be aware in claiming that things are God's will, especially when it suits us. My old teacher used to tell me that uh, that God seems to be a very middle-class God. You know, God, His plans and His will always seems to involve giving us more money, a better job, and a house in a very nice suburb. It seems that. It seems to me that God only calls people to be a doctor or lawyer, but never really a street sweeper. <laughs> I think we're going to be really wary when we claim that things are God's will when it suits us. God's will here 
is for Jesus to receive the cup. Hardly something that makes for comfort and prosperity, but ultimately it brings about God's greater good. The passage teaches us how to pray. That being said, I think the first thing these verses teaches us isn't how we are to pray, but how vital it was for Jesus to pray. After all, we can't copy Jesus and take the cup. Only Jesus can do that. Our first response is to fall to our knees and thank God for Jesus' prayer, that he agreed to submit to his Father's will. Now, as in last week's passage, Luke highlights this, the central part of this passage to be the content of Jesus' prayer, that is, not my will, but yours be done. And what he does is he highlights this by surrounding it with themes repeated on both sides of the verse. And so verse 44 returns to Jesus turning to prayer, but this time it's intensified. Jesus, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It takes a lot for God the Son to be affected so deeply, but taking on God's anger against all the sin of the world for all time is a lot. No wonder he's in agony and prays more fervently. His sweat dropping like blood will be blood dropping like sweat in time. Jesus' disciples were a stone's throw away, but they might as well have been a million miles away, for they were far from caring for Jesus, nor aligned with his or his Father's will. Instead, verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. It is a sign that his Father is the one who would tend to his own son, his father has felt every ounce of his anguish. He has heard every word of his son's prayer. He has counted every drop of sweat, wishing that his hands would be there to catch every one of those drops, for the ground is an unworthy place for them. The father strengthens his son for the next painful steps. Looking at his disciples... Jesus finds them asleep, exhausted from sorrow, verse 45. Perhaps they have comprehended a little of the suffering that their master will endure. They were not strong enough even to pray for themselves. If they were going to be spared from temptation, God is going to have to strengthen them. A strength that would only come from Jesus obeying his Father's will. Jesus brings all these themes back, back to our minds to highlight that central focus, that Jesus prays, yet not my will, but yours be done. Friends, these are really heavy words, aren't they? They are heavy words on the lead up to Easter. But they are rich words. They are gracious words. They are words that we don't, we shouldn't have had to hear. And yet God blesses us and allows us to hear it. It is a word that we preach at Easter. 
It is a word about God seeking after God's will. A will that involves not just his honor and glory, his will that involves us being saved. We are the ones in the valley being spared from God's wrath, walking that path of escape. Shouldn't we be filled with thankfulness? How about we pray that right now? Father, you have blessed us so to be able to see what happened on that Mount of Olives, to be able to see the heart of Jesus at the face of tremendous pain. Father, we hear his words that he would follow your will. And Father, we give you praise that your will didn't just involve your glory, it involved our salvation. We are eternally thankful for it. And in Jesus' name we pray.